I say, does this smell like chloroform to you? This is the Blackwater Eva Cost. Charles Wedderburn, Earl of Moulton, loves esoterica. A great many of the noble class do, of course, but his ability to collect and his desire to show his collection are a handy combination, though he will always confide, in a less than confidential way, that he only displays part of his acquisitions at any given time. Add his wife, famed for her beauty, her hospitality, and her vaguely scandalous past, and you have a recipe for a pair of socialites who host very useful gatherings indeed. Useful to me, that is. You may have heard about the recent party at Moulton Manor. It had the distinction of being an event which I actively looked forward to. Unusual, I know. A group of items became available while I was in the United States, including a biography of Athanasius Kircher with additional notes by the author, a lifelike mechanical hand, and an artifact called Mercury's Droplet, a walnut-sized sphere of polished brass with wings and swirls etched into it. The lot was purchased by the Earl before I could return. I immediately recognized the possibility of advancing my research on the topaz egg, but unfortunately, while Lord Malton likes to have his parties attended by scientific luminaries such as myself, he holds no particular fondness for me as a person. Not that he should. He is one of those dashing heroic types, and his sort and mine have never much got along. He was not going to simply lend me his new acquisitions merely because I asked him. In fact, asking was likely to cause his interest to be piqued, further removing the knowledge from my grasp. I would need to retrieve what I wanted, personally. That isn't to say I went in alone. Though I possess certain useful skills, I was an invited but somewhat suspect guest and would likely be under scrutiny. Some distraction would allow me to do as I required. That distraction would be ably provided by Miss Lily Watson, expert pickpocket and professional distraction. She would arrive on my arm as Ophelia Lena Moore, socialite. The part of Mr. Harold Allen, manservant, would be played by my engineer, Daniel Murphy, whose work you will recall from the last Ethercast. He is an unusual-looking fellow, with unruly hair and curious mannerisms, but I am considered a bit odd myself, and an unconventional household is rather expected, I think. His facility with mechanisms allows him to work quickly and without much direction, excellent for when one needs an extra pair of capable hands in a technically related emergency, which tend to happen annoyingly often. Excusing his presence with an unlikely cover story would be rather better than not having him along. The fourth member of the team was Footman Clifford Hall. He is not, in fact, my footman. He is the Earl's. However, a man who has passed up for promotion is relatively easy to acquire for one's own, and at a discount, while continuing to take the shilling of the one he is in fact spying on. During our railway journey, I reinforced in the team the key tenets of the plan. The recently purchased items would be in the parlor for display or the library for examination. We would establish the location, which Clifford was assigned to discover beforehand, then cause a pleasant distraction to draw people away for the crucial seconds required to make the removal. Murphy would assist with any technical difficulties that arose. 
Several options were laid out so that we could easily select and execute a plan. Molten Manor has clearly been designed for the purposes of entertainment, so unlike my own castle. On arrival, a footman announced us as usual. The Right Honourable Lord Blackwater and Miss Ophelia Moore. There was, as always, a bit of a stir at my introduction. I have never known whether it is due to my slight infamy, my variable companions, or my somewhat unusual sense of fashion. It could well be nothing more than curiosity over the colour of my shirt, since I often find white shirts boring and enjoy tweaking the noses of my moral betters who find anything else scandalous. However, in spite of this, and my generally outsider status, and though I have never been especially a social animal, there are in fact aspects of salons, balls, and sundry parties which recommend them to even such as I. Obviously, there are plenty of weak minds to toy with, plenty of information to gather, plenty of amusing small items to entertain oneself collecting. Yet, apart from this, one may use these gatherings as a fulcrum to leverage one's influence. For example, one of the most absurd hurdles placed in the path of navigating upper-class society is the need to be introduced to someone before conducting even the most mundane conversation. At a social gathering, one can easily vault the hurdle in a very short time with a wide swath of society, and as I outrank most of them, it is of course my option whether to continue the interaction afterward. Lord and Lady Malton themselves reliably introduced me to the few whose acquaintanceship I had not yet collected. I was duly brought to each, my scientific achievements mentioned as introduction and as a boost to the gathering's scientific significance. I, in turn, introduced each to Watson, meaning to Miss Ophelia Moore. That task concluded, I allowed her to socialize on her own, as is seemly, though the others could hardly have guessed that she was actually a falcon I had released to hunt. At this party, the Earl was showing off some devices he had acquired from the Homunculus Society, of whom you may have heard. If you have not, I can easily describe them as automaton enthusiasts, some as mad as you please, who specialize in research and innovation regarding mechanisms which emulate human functions. There were several of their devices on display, though the Earl mentioned airily that there were more as yet to be presented. One resembled a forearm holding a quill, and wrote a variety of poetical lines. Moulton's interest in purchasing the automatonic hand became clear, though it was not among the items yet on display, nor were the other two items in their auction lot. Everywhere guests were likely to congregate was filled with music. In the ballroom it was played by a hybrid chamber orchestra, partly regular musicians, partly automaton players, and one curious item which was effectively four mechanical music instruments under the control of one human. Elsewhere, current popular music played on wax cylinder phonographs. I noted with some satisfaction the higher fidelity of sound I obtained with the Ethercast device which I am using at this moment. In the drawing room was an automaton shaped like a large, boxy human. Its chest cavity was open and contained a phonograph and rows of recorded cylinders. The device would automatically play various songs, replacing each with its blocky hands as it ended, but would also take requests from among its variable cylinders. A row of buttons allowed listeners to suggest what to play next. I have always wondered at the quite reliable insistence on making things look vaguely human in ways that have nothing to do with their function, such as putting a moustache on an automaton. Its anthropomorphic shape is unnecessary enough, 
but a moustache? Absurd. Returning to the ballroom for Watson's status report, I chanced upon a young lady whom I had not seen in some time, a Miss Cora Danvers. I recognized her smallish stature and medium blonde hair from behind, and I mildly greeted her, Miss Danvers, it is a pleasure to see you again. She jumped slightly and spun to face me. Oh, my Lord Blackwater, you startled me. I tend to have that effect on people. I'm sure I have no idea why. At that, her cheeks colored, and she became flustered in the way which young ladies so often do. I would need to lead this conversation, and did so by asking what activities filled her days since we had last spoken. Like most pretty young ladies, socializing absorbed much of the time, though she admitted to an interest in some modern technologies. With a glance away and a slight blush, she added that she attended a regular salon featuring the latest photograph cylinders. As I took my leave, I assured her that the advancement of one's mind is never a detriment or a fool's errand, and that she should pursue her curiosity where it leads, as I have always done. I then kissed her hand in what is now a very old-fashioned manner, and then gave a small bow, merely a slight nod, really, to her and her wide blue eyes. I stepped into the ballroom, slipping Miss Danvers' bracelet into my coat pocket, and made a summoning eye contact with Watson. We met near the middle of the floor and joined the dance. She barely suppressed an amused smile. Indulging in some mischief, my lord? Nonsense. I was merely encouraging a young lady's curiosity. Oh, I bet you were. And, yes, warming up a bit to the night's work. Stop smirking at me and tell me what you found. What she had found was that, as I suspected, the auction items were in Moulton's library, which he also uses as his study. What locks or other security existed in that room she had not yet discovered. There was worse news, though. We would need to get past both heroes and villains. The hero side included our irritatingly dashing host and a man named Victor Latham. Intrepid League? More or less. Associate member, as it were. He'll be easy enough to handle. For you. Let me guess. The villain contingent is the Grey Stripe. And you probably already guessed that they're after the same thing we are. I had made that simple leap. It was more or less inevitable. Further discussion brought us to the conclusion that due to a pair of grey striped members loitering near the hallway which led to the library, we would need a new plan. By the end of the piece we had something in mind, though the end game was rather in question. As further details were hashed out, nearby guests began to glance at us. Though our voices were kept low, the conversation became sharp, our expressions betraying annoyance. When the musicians ended their next song, Watson stepped back and curtsied rather coldly, then glared at me a moment and stalked off. I called after her, Miss Moore, but she did not respond. I sighed and shook my head, and turned to go set my knight and rook into position. As I did so, Watson, or rather Miss Moore, as I shall call her for now, approached our host with a confidential warning. A group which the Earl may have heard of, the Grey Stripe, had representatives among the guests. True to their charter, the villainous occultists were planning to steal one or more of the more esoteric artifacts of Moulton Manor. The Earl narrowed his eyes at her. Anne Blackwater has sent you to warn me about this. Rather unlike him. By no means. These agents are under his direction. I had thought him a reformed man after his time abroad, but he has returned to his old ways. I could not stand by while they take advantage of my lord's hospitality.
We must keep an eye on the Baron. Could you appear to reconcile yourself with him? I could, but it is passing unlikely that he would take direct hand in the matter. After all, he surely considers himself under observation at all times. At once charming and wise. How strange that we have not met before. We must extend an invitation to you for future gatherings, Miss Moore. But for this evening, we must work together to discover these grey stripe agents and foil their plans. You have already met Mr. Latham. Between us, I am certain we can triumph, and without so much as disturbing my lovely wife's hospitable mood. Miss Moore naturally agreed to this course of action, and would also endeavor to discover what the grey stripe wished to burgle. It seemed probable that their target would be one of the items in the drawing room, which functioned as the Earl's cabinet of curiosities. The next half hour was best described as a well-dressed game of cat and mouse. The grey stripe agents, who turned out to be Mr. Clark and Mr. Green, did their best to prevent my gaining access to the library while attempting to enter it themselves, and of course I returned the favors. Moulton and the company, once they had identified the agents, succeeded in a divide and conquer action. The divide part, at any rate, was accomplished when Victor Latham buttonholed Clark in the drawing room with a discussion of the future of musical recording, surrounded by various intrigued guests. Thus separated from his co-conspirator, Green quietly confronted me in the ballroom, to which I had made a tactical retreat. "'What exactly do you think you're doing, Baron? We have instructions to retrieve a particular item, and we shall have it. No one, not even you, can prevent that.' The band struck up a new tune, a bouncy modern-styled thing, and Ophelia Moore appeared at Green's shoulder, interrupting his glower. "'Mr. Green! It is Mr. Green, isn't it? Do you know this tune? The dance is simply all the rage. It's such fun. It's a dilly! Oh, I know you can do it. Duck soup. If you were a dear, you'd ask me to dance it with you. And you are, dear, aren't you? You darling! Hurry! We mustn't miss it!' Having swindled an invitation from the hapless Green, she all but dragged him to the dance floor, and began madly doing whatever the devil that new dance was. <laughs> Very effective, my dear. Very effective. On the way to the library, I detoured to pass the drawing room. Victor Latham still held court, speaking most directly to Calvin Clark, and thereby preventing him from leaving. I could see Latham's look of smug satisfaction from the doorway, though Clark was actually facing me. His eyes met mine for a moment. I slightly raised my eyebrows and shoulders in response, and continued to the library, Murphy's quiet snicker following from a couple paces behind. "'Twas brillig, and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borgos, and the momraths outgrabe. "'Beware the jabberwock, my son!' The jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jub-jub bird, and shun the frumious bandersnatch. He took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the manxome foe he sought. Then rested he by a tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And as in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tulgy wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the warp blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he went galumphing back. And hast thou slain the jabberwock? 
Come to my arms, my beamish boy. Oh, frabjous day, kalu-kalay, he chortled in his joy. It was brillig, and the slithy toes did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borogoes, and the mumraths outgrabe. The library door was locked, as expected, but the lock primitive and easily picked, as expected. We soon slipped inside. I quietly closed the door and turned to find Murphy mere inches from me, frantically and silently waving his hands in alarm. I furrowed my brow a simultaneous question and mild rebuke, and he pointed to the desk. At that moment, I was happy for the tendency to anthropomorphize clockwork devices, because I could easily tell that the elaborate recording device sitting there was not looking our direction. It resembled the armless upper torso and head of a man, and appeared to be near the end of its construction. It had not yet been dressed or painted, and the overall effect was that of a bust from ancient Greece, if the Greeks worked in metal and leather, rather than marble. There was no immediate way to tell whether its head could yet turn, though it was clearly built with that in mind. The ears were almost certainly already functional if the eyes were, and it was far too conveniently placed as a guard over the room containing the Earl's most recent acquisitions. We had to assume that it had heard our entry, and would record anything we said. I pointed to the door to indicate we should get out and discuss what to do in a safer place. I opened it to see Clark and Green hurrying into the hallway from the far corner, and almost bowled Murphy over in my sudden reversal. Gesturing to him the nature of the problem, we hastily found a place to hide. Behind the window curtains, a traditional choice, and also the only one which presented itself. A moment later, the grey stripe agents poked their heads in. They carefully closed the door, and were soon looking through the various cabinets. In three or four interminable minutes, they found what they had come for. Green suddenly said, The droplet! and held up the etched brass ball. Clark said, To the servants' quarters! and they left with speed. The evening was not going precisely to plan. I would need to send Murphy to inform Clifford, because if it was indeed being hidden in the servants' quarters, none of the guests would be able to get to it. Which was a fairly good idea, I had to admit. But first we would need to finish taking care of things in the library. With silent haste we unscrewed the access hatch on the rear of the watcher's torso. It was soon switched off, and as there was only room in it for one pair of hands, I left Murphy to work and examined the areas the agents had searched. The other two items from the auction had been left where they were. They apparently only had eyes for Mercury's droplet. That was a workable situation, at least. In fairly short order, Murphy had finished the adjustments required and signaled that I should remove myself from the automaton's line of sight. Soon it was reactivated, and we could safely leave. Murphy was sent with instructions for Clifford, and I went the other direction, returning to the ballroom. It would be good at this point to be seen and clearly up to no mischief. As usual, I was not immediately pursued for conversation, and so had a few moments to be seen as simply present, and also to take stock of what was happening. Lord Mowbray noticed me, and I saw his eyes light up at the prospect of trying to engage me in a discussion of politics, which he knows I loathe. If I didn't find another conversational partner before he could conclude his present discussion, I would be entirely immobilized for at least some minutes. Miss Cora Danvers, judging by her gestures, was asking a friend if she had seen her bracelet. 
Her friend looked across the room and met my eyes with a most curious expression, then with a resigned look agreed to lend her aid. I doubted they would ask my help when they came near, but it was possible. The grey-striped members, Clark and Green, had slipped into the room moments after I had, and were establishing their alibi with the simple expedient of immediately asking a couple of ladies to dance. A moment later, Murphy arrived at my elbow with the news that Clifford had vanished from his post at the drawing room. I then saw Miss Ophelia Moore give Clark and Green a look of pure enmity as she spoke to Victor Latham, and then the pair spoke rather urgently and quietly. With the expression of one who has just made a righteous declaration, Latham went to Lord Morton, and what could only be described as a stage whisper, told him that someone had surreptitiously entered the library. "'The devil, you say! It was a locked door! Who would dare such a thing?' Miss Moore expressed her suspicions of the grey stripe agents, and Mr. Latham gave his opinion that it was a certain baron's doing. "'Fortunately, the library itself will tell us if someone has been there, and whom. Come with me!' Moulton strode from the room, drawing at least two-thirds of those present in his wake. The grey stripe agents remained, of course, among others including Lady Moulton, and I was, as predicted, pinned in place by Mowbray and his self-amused questioning. As such, I only heard afterward what had happened in the library. Arriving at its door, Moulton grasped and turned the handle. Well, it's certainly locked now. He produced the key, then entered, switching on the electric lamps as he did. He stood before the automaton and said, Observer, report! The machine whirred and made small metallic thumping sounds, and a long sheet of paper emerged from a slot in the front. Various times and pieces of information had been printed on it. Though nearly incomprehensible at first, familiarity with the format allowed a full story to be understood, and Morton, translating aloud to the onlookers, put together something which sounded very much like a pair of men resembling the grey stripe agents had entered the room, searched it, and removed Mercury's droplet. Some of the information appeared to be missing. There was a span of time which registered as recorded, but there was nothing to report. Morton frowned and ordered a playback of what had been heard by the machine's ears. Some sound had been recorded on the internal wax cylinder, but it was unintelligible. Two men's voices, arguably, but it wasn't possible to identify them or their words. Perhaps that part of the automaton was malfunctioning. In any case, it was fairly clear to the Earl that the agents had absconded with the brass bauble. Morton marched back to the ballroom, leading his crowd. He summoned Green and Clark. Their dance partners, embarrassed, escaped to the sides of the room. The musicians faltered. Even Mowbray paused to see what was happening. "'Sirs, I have occasionally had to endure boorish behavior at a gathering, but this is lower than I have yet seen. Breaking into an intentionally locked and private room, and absconding with my recently and legally acquired property. What have you to say for yourselves?' Lady Morton approached, concerned and curious, and rather worried that her party was approaching a rocky shore. "'What was taken, my dear?' "'It was one of the items I purchased recently and have been examining.' It is a little marvel called Mercury's Droplet, brass sphere nearly two inches across, etched with wings, simply beautiful. Like that one, in the display case beside you? Morton glanced at the tall glass-enclosed shelving. Yes, exactly like... Ah, I see. <clears throat> has it... has it been here the entire time? Lady Morton shrugged as though to say, as far as I know, yes. 
Apparently, I had decided to display it after all. Clifford, do you have a key to this case? Excellent. I'll carry the droplet so that all may see it up close. I say, why has the music stopped? Give us a tune to dance to. Gentlemen, you must allow me to apologize with the most excellent cocktails you have ever had. Come with me. Clark went with the Earl, but Green paused and returned to me. Before he could speak, I carefully pointed out, You owe me. He stammered, How? How did I do it? More to the point, how did I frustrate your plans and simultaneously save you from their collapse? Well, yes. I could have told him that tampering with the recorder kept me free of accusation or causing the agents just enough trouble, or that having an inside man meant retrieving what was beyond reach, or that attention and suspicion can be applied like any other force to move whatever you wish, or that misdirection is one of the most useful skills one can have. After all, I wasn't there for Mercury's droplet, or for the mechanical hand. The Kircher biography holds no particular interest for me either. However, the author's notes and diagrams that were tucked into the book would shed light on the topaz egg I had taken from the thug Gedge, and possibly provide information about the device to which it belongs. And thanks to the swirl of madness around that brass walnut, no one has even noticed they're missing. I raised my chin a trifle and looked him square in the eyes. How did I do it? I am Blackwater. The Blackwater Aethercast is written, produced, and performed by Nicholas Jovian. Additional voices by Kayla Thomas. Beginning and ending music is by Derek and Brandon Fichter. They can be found at dbfichter.bandcamp.com. Today's entertainment was Jabberwocky by Lewis Carroll. Be sure to subscribe to the Aethercast and send your friends lordblackwater.com so they can too. Also, visit lordblackwater.com to be the featured entertainment. And thanks for listening! Be sure to check your pockets. <laughs>